From WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University, I'm Byron Williams, and this is The Public Morality. On today's Public Morality, we speak with Melissa Botea from the Center for American Progress on the issue of poverty. And after that, Molly Reynolds from the Brookings Institute will join us to discuss the state of the Republican Party. That's next on The Public Morality. Poverty impacts every major issue that we face, only it's given merely a glancing nod in the public discourse. How can we have a judicious conversation about the economy, education, health care, or any other significant issue without addressing poverty? Who among us in the quiet solitude of our own soul can say without hesitation the success we've attained, however defined, was due exclusively to pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Poverty has managed to be defined in the public discourse by laziness and apathy. Those who are impoverished have no one to blame except for themselves. So the narrative goes. If one can maintain the facade, naively believing that low-income people are a cabal of loafers who are sitting around waiting for quote-unquote free stuff, their humanity remains tragically invisible. Moreover, we won't see any need to take action. There is no burden on elected officials at any level of government to discuss poverty in a meaningful way. As former Senator Bob Dole so adequately stated, there is no Poor People's Political Action Committee. Dole's observations suggest poverty is perhaps the only special interest unlikely to have its voice financially represented on Capitol Hill. Joining me to discuss poverty in the context of the 2016 presidential election is Melissa Botea, Vice President of Poverty to Prosperity Program at the Center for American Progress in Washington, D.C. When uh, Pope Francis visited uh, the United States, it, it, it felt to me as if uh, that was the most consecutive days of the 24-hour news cycle mentioned poverty in quite some time. Why is poverty so difficult, especially for our elected officials to address? I think oftentimes people otherize the poor. It's it's not us, it's them. And so it's easy to sort of push things aside. Uh, when in reality, four and five Americans at some point during their working years are going to experience at least one year of chronic economic insecurity, turning to the safety net or being unemployed. So I think it's easy for politicians and the media often to marginalize folks who are struggling, when in reality, this is a structural issue in our economy that's affecting all of us. Is income inequality in general and in your view, and poverty specifically, uh, a moral issue, as Senator Bernie Sanders has uh, been saying on the campaign trail? It's absolutely a moral issue. When you have millions of kids in this country going hungry in the richest country in the history of the world, it's absolutely a moral issue. It's both a moral issue and it's in our economic self-interest. It's both and. Um, and I think that we need to present it as both and. We need to appeal to the fact that um, – that in this country we shouldn't have kids going to bed hungry, we shouldn't have families who are working full-time and still living in poverty, and at the same time make the case to people's self-interest that when we all do better, we all do better. Um, so a thing with that theme, when you think of issues domestically, um, is there an issue that in some way does not include an aspect of poverty in it? And I'm thinking in terms of if we talk about Wall Street, uh, oligarchy, or if we're talking about uh, crime, if we're talking about the prison. I mean, how many, I mean, I guess what I'm asking you is that poverty sort of touches every issue that we face domestically in some capacity. Absolutely. I mean, intersectionality is key. 
Uh, you know, you look at everything from childcare. Um, you know, there's there's folks out there advocating for childcare and early education. Well, if you're poor or low income, you're paying about 30% of your income toward childcare. It's a barrier to, uh, you know, to parents going into the workforce. And you think about kids' long-term outcomes, those early years and the quality of their childcare are critical. You think about immigration, um, and you think about, you know, the fact that, you know, millions of families are being separated by deportations or the fact that exploitation of immigrants drives down wages for everybody. There's intersectionality with climate change and the fact that low-income communities are hit first and worst by extreme weather events that are related to climate change and that investment in a green economy is one of our best anti-poverty strategies. You can pick almost any issue out there, and it has a connection to cutting poverty. Explain, uh, if you will, the relationship between poverty and America's um, huge incarceration rate. This is this is the connections are deep and comprehensive because it's both on the front end. Low-income people, and especially low-income people of color, um, are disproportionately likely to be locked up to have higher sentences. Um, and then when they get out, you have the uh, you have one in three Americans who has some type of criminal record, which represents a huge barrier to employment, to education, to accessing credit, to start your own business, to family reunification. On the front end and the back end, low-income people and people of color um, are experiencing the brunt of the criminal justice system, and it's preventing people from getting ahead. So you know, we, we, we we've um, are in the midst of a campaign season, and I'm wondering how can the public discourse or elected official um, oppose the minimum wage, be opposed to unions, and advocate for uh, cuts in public assistance. Isn't that counterintuitive? It's interesting that you should say that because, you know, one of the it's, – it's absolutely counterintuitive, first of all. But one of the things that uh, Center for American Progress Analysis showed is that one of the fastest ways, um, if you if you want to reduce public expenditures on uh, on assistance, is to raise the minimum wage. We showed that if you were to raise it to twelve dollars an hour, as is the proposal in Congress, you would save over fifty billion dollars in food stamp spending over the next ten years. And so, if you say that you're against raising the minimum wage, but you also want to cut assistance on food and nutrition and housing, you're basically advocating for people uh, to be struggling in the streets and returning to a level of deprivation that we had in the country before we enacted our basic uh, safety net. So um, they're, they're, it's very contradictory. Well, no, I, I was, I was, as you were just talking, I was, I was, this just occurred to me. And uh, isn't, couldn't we also conclude that we even, uh, there's too much emphasis placed on minimum wage? Shouldn't, shouldn't the, 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 the discourse be talking about a, a livable wage? Well, that, and that's what the fight for 15 and a lot of these worker movements is really about. Explain um, that fight for 15, please. I mean, there are workers organizing across the country for a $15 minimum uh, minimum wage, which is more of a living wage. Um, fast food workers, home care workers, um, who are basically saying, you know, we're the backbone of the economy. Um, and I think, you know, the fact that for years people have been trying to put minimum wage and living wage on the agenda, um, but it's really taken workers organizing in the streets to bring this attention to the level it has of national consciousness, uh, shows the importance of a social movement that has at its forefront the people who are most directly affected uh, organizing uh, in the streets. So uh, staying on that, just that, 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 that basic theme, uh, and, and instead of simply reporting the number of jobs uh, created each month, how about a quality job index? Uh, would that, wouldn't that be a better barometer to, return, uh, to determine the overall health of the economy? Um, I, I think that would be a very important indicator to look at because what's happened is if you look at the income and the poverty data from the past several years, uh, you know, the economy has been growing. We've been creating jobs. 
but the poverty rate has stayed relatively flat, and that's in no small part due to the fact that the jobs that are being created are not high-quality jobs. Um, and a lot of the, the gains from that economic growth are concentrating at the top, while middle-class and low-income families are seeing flatter declining wages. So I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you be uh, queen for the day and, and tell me what you so it's a total. It's a total dictatorship. No one can challenge you. Awesome. <laughs> you, love, you love it already, right? Yes. Question. <laughs> you can't wait for the question. I can tell. <laughs> I can tell you. Um, what would a quality job index look like, in your opinion? So obviously, wages are a part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you have to make sure that people have enough uh, to live on, and that people who not, but not only wages, but that people who work for a living ought to have a decent life. Parents shouldn't have to be making impossible choices between whether or not to forego uh, this week's paycheck or to care for their child who's homesick with the flu. Um, so it would include does uh, you know does the job have paid sick days? Does the job have paid family leave? Does the job have a flexible and predictable schedule? Because one of the big issues that's uh, that's out there right now is that workers are getting their schedules, you know, a day before they're supposed to come in. Are they getting their hours cut back when they thought they were going to have income? And it's it's completely all over the place and unpredictable, which means people don't have income stability um, and they have no control over their schedules. And so a really important basic labor standard is the right to a flexible and predictable schedule. Um, I would also just make sure that people had um, they didn't have barriers to work. So, for example, a criminal record shouldn't be a lifelong sentence to poverty. Um, that employers should be making sure that they're taking into account um, a worker's full range of capabilities and not only disqualifying people on the basis of a criminal record or a disability or other barriers to employment. And that some of the other barriers, like in, inadequate or unaffordable childcare or transportation, are also taken care of, so that workers uh, not only not only the jobs out there, but the most disadvantaged workers are able to access them. Well, you you did well. Thanks. That, that was good. That, that was good. We need to put you in charge. Huh? Um, now, but now I'm I'm going to be the dissenting voice who didn't know that you were in charge of all things and and didn't know that um, one couldn't question you. And oh, I know. Here here we go. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say uh, that sounds great. However, um, you're gonna kill small business. What do you say to that? So first of all, there's been a large number of studies now debunking the idea uh, that a higher minimum wage is going to kill small businesses. At, at, at worst, it's a very small effect, and at best, it's no effect or even a positive effect on jobs. So that's the, on the wage front, uh, a minimum wage of $12 an hour is being proposed in Congress. Uh, could be enacted without the job losses that conservatives decry. On the other pieces about fair and predictable scheduling, paid sick leave, paycheck fairness, um, I think it's important to note that there's a growing and burgeoning business voice in favor of these policies because uh, they promote a stable workforce, uh, which means employers are paying less for turnover costs. They meet, and, and when you have a more experienced workforce, you have higher customer satisfaction, customer retention. And so there is a definite business case to be made for investing in the human capital of your workforce and making people who work for a living ha- make sure they have a decent life as well. Well, you, you know, on that, on that last point you just made about in, in, in the, in the, in the uh, benefits of investing uh, into your workforce, when do we get away from that? I mean, if you start looking at when uh, when the economy really started diverging, it, you look at the late 1970s. Until then, the, the three decades following World War II, everybody kind of moved forward together. The economy grew, and the top did well, but so did the middle and the bottom. And starting in 1979, if you're imagining a graph, you start seeing this division with worker productivity continuing to go up, uh, profits and productivity continuing to grow. 
but wages staying flat for those at the middle and the bottom. Um, and so for the past really three decades, we've had this great divergence and burgeoning income inequality, which is translated not just into higher poverty, but lower economic mobility, um, decreased capacity for civic participation, and a whole host of other negative outcomes. Um, I'm not asking you to um, making a sort of political analysis specifically, but 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 what, I'm going to come. I sort of touched on it earlier, but I'm going to come back to it. Just some of the things you've outlined um, doing this broadcast. You would. It's very possible to listen to candidates on both sides of the aisle talking and doing this presidential season. And none of you wouldn't think any of the things you just mentioned even existed. Any thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, there definitely needs to be more talk about poverty and inequality as part of the 2016 debates. We just had a Democratic debate um, in which some of these issues were raised. There were questions and there were proactive answers on issues relating to child care, on income inequality, um, on raising wages. So I think that's beginning to get out there. Um, I still think that the debate is missing a lot of key um, a lot of key topics that relate not just to cutting poverty, but to economic mobility and opportunity for all Americans. Um, and that's everything from, um, you know, how do we create more jobs, um, such as like investing in infrastructure and subsidized employment, um, the sort of the job quality issues we discussed earlier about fair and predictable scheduling, um, about how we make the tax code work better for working families. There's been a lot of conversations about these tax plans the candidates have put out in terms of, um, you know, the wealthy. Uh, and I think that it's important that we see that analysis showing to what extent these tax plans are really benefiting the wealthiest Americans. I'd love to hear more talk about how we can make the tax code work better for low-wage working families through things like expansion and the earned income and child tax credits. Um, and then I think we haven't talked at all about things like workers with disabilities, about neighborhood revitalization, and about actually going on offense on our safety net. We've been so entrenched in talking about just protecting what we have from cuts that I think it's time for sort of a proactive vision of how we actually strengthen and bring our social insurance policies into the 21st century. Yeah, as, you, as, you were, as you were talking, I was thinking about um, former Senator Bob Dole, uh, who said that um, there's a reason there is no uh, Poor People's Political Action Committee. And, I mean, it, 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 listening to you talk, it's like you mentioned infrastructure. We should have had an infrastructure bill, um, what, several years ago? And and but there's no will um, to get that done. Is, is there anyone in Congress who doesn't know that the infrastructure is crumbling? I hope not, because <laughs> <laughs> we all need to drive on it. Or we all need to use that broadband. I mean, it's it's this is something that sh- used to be bipartisan. There's no reason it shouldn't be bipartisan, and Congress has just not been able to get it done. Hmm. Finally, let me just ask you: uh, Is it possible to have a a viable policy um, that um, the that, that addresses policy, addresses poverty, excuse me, that relies almost exclusively on tax cuts and tax credits? I don't think so. I mean, I think that you have to talk about work and labor standards as well, because even among the poorest families, the vast majority of their income comes from work or work-based income. Uh, and so if you ignore the labor standards part of the equation, whether it's in the creation of jobs and tightening of the labor market or wages or paid sick days or fair schedules, you're really missing probably the central part of the equation. Uh, you're also missing a conversation on wealth and assets because we've talked a lot about income inequality, but there's even bigger disparities when it comes to uh, wealth inequality, especially for people of color. And while income is what you need to get by, assets are what you need to get ahead uh, and to invest in your in your future education and starting a small business and putting your kids through college and saving for that first home. Um, and if we, we miss the conversation on assets and wealth building, I think we're missing something very important. 
Melissa Botea, I want to thank you uh, for being on the public rally today. Thank you so much for having me. Stay tuned as we discuss the Republican Party in the House of Representatives. The wheels of the House Republican Party train seem to be coming off the rails. The piece about governing that former Speaker of the House John Boehner pledged to the American people is but a distant, unfulfilled promise. House Republicans these days are known more for government investigations that prove nothing and government shutdowns, creating an atmosphere that made it difficult to find a viable candidate before settling on Paul Ryan to become the next Speaker of the House, replacing John Boehner. It seems the rhetoric to govern is not matched by a tangible commitment to do so, leaving many Americans frustrated and increasingly apathetic about the country's ability to move forward. I know it is commonplace to say both parties are at fault, but the facts show something different. House Republicans specifically are the obstinate outlier, making our checks and balance system of governing impossible to function. My guest is Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute in Washington, D.C., At the time of our interview, the Republican Party had not selected Paul Ryan to be the next speaker, replacing Boehner. Molly Reynolds, welcome to the Public Morality. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What does Speaker Boehner's resignation and subsequently Majority Leader McCarthy dropping out of the race to become speaker say about the state of the Republican Party and, and to some degree, the GOP at large? Sure. So what uh, the decision uh, by John Boehner to resign from being Speaker of the House and the subsequent uh, tumult over whether Kevin McCarthy was going to run for Speaker and then not run for Speaker um, indicates a couple things about the current state of the Republican Party, especially in Congress, but um, as you indicated, a little more broadly as well. Specifically, one thing is that Uh, It indicates that the traditional approaches, the ones we've seen used historically by the House Majority Party to manage a diverse Majority Party caucus, those things aren't working. So we know that uh, since the Civil War, the usual approach that uh, a House Majority Party that's diverse um, ideologically, like our current House Majority Party, um, the approach they usually use is the... Uh, they reach a consensus candidate to be Speaker of the House, and then they re- they give um, other leadership posts to uh, the other factions within the party. We saw the House Republicans try this um, a few weeks back. We saw uh, House uh, uh, John Boehner try to recruit Trey Gowdy of South Carolina to run for uh, House Majority Leader, um, and that, that didn't work. That didn't uh, sort of resolve this tension within the party. Um, another tactic that the uh, majority party often turns to in uh, times of ideological struggle are procedural changes. And we have seen uh, the House Freedom Caucus uh, demand some of these kinds of changes in return for their support for a speaker candidate. Um, but we've also seen that a number of their procedural demands would make it really difficult for the majority party to work effectively in the House. If, they, if the Republicans were to give in to these things. So, for example, um, the Freedom Caucus has asked for uh, more, uh, a more open amending process on the floor of the House for 
uh, Republicans to have more chances to offer amendments to bills. And this um, this could work quite well, or it could backfire and give um, opportunities for more Democrats to offer amendments that might embarrass Republicans. It also might put moderate Republicans in uh, tough spots and make them cast votes that they don't want to cast them up for. So it's not, um, it's not clear that a lot of the procedural changes that the Freedom Caucus is asking for would really, um, really help uh, make the House a more effective institution again. Um, if you would, say more about not so much who, but uh, what the Freedom Caucus actually uh, stands for. We've got the Black Caucus, Hispanic Caucus, we've got you know, uh, the Progressive Caucus. Well, sure. So the Freedom Caucus. So Give me the outline of a Freedom Caucus member, if you will. Yeah, so the, the House Freedom Caucus um, is a, uh, as a formal group with the name House Freedom Caucus. is a relatively new phenomenon uh, in uh, the House of Representatives. They came on the scene, formally formed uh, this past January and January of 2015, uh, and there are a couple things that make them sort of interesting. Um, number one, they've chosen on purpose to not have a formal list of members. There are lots of lists you can access uh, in the press, lots of folks um, who will be reported as being Freedom Caucus members, but they've chosen to keep their uh, their list, um, list private. And some of that is the idea that if you don't know exactly how many people you have to negotiate with, um, that might put the more establishment Republicans, the Republican leadership, in a tougher spot, um, sort of keep them on their toes a little bit. A couple other things that are true about Freedom Caucus members, they tend uh, to be a little bit more uh, junior in the House than um, other Republicans. So. The average uh, Republican member of the House has served about four and a half terms. The average member of the Freedom Caucus, such that we know who those members are, has served about three terms. So they, they're a little newer to the institution. Um, they are not uh, that much more conservative on average, using some of our uh, measures of, um, of conservatism. Um, and they come from slightly more conservative districts, but again, not overwhelmingly more conservative districts than the average House member. Um, so that's sort of demographically what, mm-hmm. uh, what we know about them. And then in terms of um, sort of what we, uh, what we can say about sort of what they want. Um, so as I indicated, they, ha- they have um, threatened to withhold their support for a candidate for a Speaker of the House. Um, unless certain certain demands um, are met. And some of these demands are procedural. As I was saying, they include um, they want a more open amending process in the House. They feel like the current um, House leadership has really limited the ability of um, Republican members to go on the floor of the House and offer amendments to bills. Um, and then... Uh, they also want to see more uh, power restored to uh, House committees. They feel like uh, House committees have really been taken out of the legislative process. And then they also have some policy demands, um, things like a full defunding of Planned Parenthood. Um, no, So no federal funds going to Planned Parenthood. Um, a pledge to uh, pass, at least through the House, a full repeal of the Affordable Care Act, these sorts of things. So what they're doing is they're making a combination of procedural and policy demands in an attempt to get, um, to get-
get some concessions on uh, the Speaker of the House candidate. Now, uh, first of all, historically, are, are they the um, the uh, extension of? Uh, I think they're called. They were called the Young Guns. I'm thinking of McCarthy, Paul Ryan, and uh, Eric Cantor. There are they the natural outgrowth of that group, or? So uh, it's interesting that you uh, interesting you bring up the Young Guns because, um, as you mentioned, we uh, that was a, a term uh, that sort of came on the scene uh, in. About 2010, uh, when Eric Cantor, Kevin McCarthy, and Paul Ryan um, started engaging in a really aggressive uh, effort to recruit lots of new, um, very conservative candidates for the House of Representatives. Um, but since then, we've seen Eric Cantor lose a congressional primary to um, a sort of um, an unknown college professor. I was going to say, if you can't remember his name, we, we, we will not hold that against you. <laughs> his, his, name, uh, his name is Dave Bratt. Uh, okay, there you Good for you. He's an uh, he's economics an, uh, professor. Yep. Um, he was an economics professor. Um, and uh, so we've seen Eric Cantor lose that primary. And then we saw uh, what happened with Kevin McCarthy. We saw uh, he was sort of the next in line to be the speaker. Um, and so in some ways, um, I think that you're right that what we've seen is this effort by McCarthy and Cantor and Ryan to recruit lots of new folks to run for the House. Um, and then I think what we're dealing with now is um, one sort of effect of that. Um, we have a number of um, sort of this, this group of um, freedom, the Freedom Caucus, uh, and they, uh, they're obviously playing a big role in um, – Speaker. You know, I, I I was thinking, was it back 2013? Um, uh, you please correct me on the history here, but I believe uh, Vice President Biden uh, brokered a deal with Senators Reid and McConnell to raise the debt ceiling uh, in the midst of a government shutdown, and, and, and even then, Speaker Boehner could only get what maybe a third of the House Republicans. So we have seen um, a number of times, and recent votes to raise the debt ceiling are one example of this, um, and we've seen it in other instances, uh, including um, in the winter of 2015 with a vote to fund the Department of Homeland Security. We have seen a number of different times when uh, Speaker Boehner, confronted with dissent within his own party, has um, brought bills to the floor that got a minority of the majority party, so a minority of the Republicans, and then a majority of the Democrats um, together in a coalition to pass the bill. So that's something that has happened a number of times, um, again, just recently with the um, bill to keep the government funded through uh, mid-December. It's another place where uh, Boehner brought something to the floor that had uh, support of only a a small uh, group of his caucus, and then uh, members of the Democratic Party as well. So, so in your view, in, in observing um, the House of Representatives, mm-hmm. are the convictions uh, of the of the Freedom Caucus and those members, however many there are, are their convictions so strong that not even you know the faith, the global faith in the dollar, is not too much to risk to get what they want accomplished? I think that there, um, I think the convictions of um, folks in the Freedom Caucus, and again, the Freedom Caucus as a sort of formal group is relatively new, and these dynamics of um, where we have kind of a, a group of Republicans who are very, uh, who have staked out a very hardline position, we've seen this uh, play out a number of times in the past several years, uh, dating back sort of 
famously to the 2011 showdown over raising the debt ceiling. Um, so we've, we've seen this kind of strategy play out over and over again. And I do think that it's, it makes um, this negotiating process um, more difficult, and it encourages the kind of uh, sort of lurching from deadline to deadline that we see a lot of now, um, a lot of last-minute legislating. Um, when there is a, a group within the party who feels like by staking out um, a relatively extreme position and um, trying to use that as their leverage, uh, that we can end up uh, we can end up with uh, it's more difficult to uh, to negotiate a compromise. I, re- I remember when um, Speaker then Speaker Gingrich in the early '90s, you know, led this effort for a government shutdown. I remember thinking. Well, we won't see that again, and mm-hmm. and now it's becoming almost, I sad to say, commonplace in 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 in, a, in our public discourse. I think. I mean, you're right. We went from so the uh, the government shutdowns that you're referring to are uh, date to the mid nineties, um, but we saw uh, we saw one uh, in twenty uh, in twenty thirteen, about sixteen days in October of twenty thirteen. Um, over there, the big uh, conflict was over whether uh, to provide federal funds to implement the Affordable Care Act. Um, and we've, again, seen lots of threats of shutdowns. Uh, we had one last December and then again one uh, in September uh, that was somewhat diffused by Boehner's decision to step down. And now we're talking about whether or not we might see one again this December when um, – uh, when the the current agreement to fund the government on a short term basis runs out, so uh, it is clear that over the past several years we've sort of returned uh, to having uh, a lot of discussion about shutdowns, and it is probably more common than it was in in the mid nineties. Um, how does the number of safe seats in Congress um, play in in the in, in emboldening in, so so that the Freedom Caucus is emboldened in their actions. So I think that you uh, you bring up a really great point, which is that um, increasingly more and uh, more and more seats in the House are what we would call safe, um, where folks uh, who are running for Congress don't see um, don't see really difficult challenges. Um, and I think that that uh, when a member of the House isn't concerned about uh, his opponent in a general election that does make it easier for him or her to kind of stake out um, a position that's relatively extreme within uh, their own party. So this would um, this would be true for either Republicans or Democrats. We've been talking about a lot about the Freedom Caucus since they've been in the news, but theoretically, you know, if the Democrats were in the majority and we saw um, some uh, – uh, some Democrats from safe seats, we could imagine that um, they would be similarly not similarly less concerned about um, about the prospect of um, of challengers. What we uh, what we have seen um, more of, and this comes back to uh, what we were discussing before about Eric Cantor, is that if there's any if um, members in Congress feel, uh, particularly Republicans, feel any electoral pressure now, it's much more common for it to be in the primaries. And so we see a lot of discussion about where members are concerned about being primaried. And the idea there is that it's not a general election challenge that they would face because they're in a solidly Republican, solidly safe district. 
but it's a challenge within the Republican primary from a more a candidate who's more conservative or um, appears more committed to conservative principles. Again, this is what we um, a lot of what we saw with Eric Cantor, where he was defeated by someone who uh, who sold his constituents on the idea that he was a truer conservative um, and that he would represent conservative principles better in Washington. So the primary process um, uh, naturally moves um, the elected official uh, even more to the right. It can. Um, that's certainly not true for every member, but it is something that um, that we have that we have seen um, in some in some districts and. That uh, I think is um, an important. It's important to think about primaries when we talk about um, this phenomenon of groups like groups like the Freedom Caucus. Uh, and when we hear folks asking, "Well, won't they be punished for uh, you know taking these extreme positions?" And there, I think it's important to remember that if there is any uh, electoral consequence, it's not likely to come from a Democratic candidate or in the general election that's likely to come in a primary. And to follow up, in, in, in a two-party system, as you stated, um, not to suggest Democrats are somehow paragons of virtue in all of this. Sure. But, but explain how um, this process, as it currently stands with, with the Republican Party in a two-party system, how is this corrosive to our democracy as a whole? Right. So I would say one of the um, one of the biggest ways in which this kind of um, the kind of partisanship and the kind of partisan um, infighting that we are seeing right now um, is problematic is, as I was mentioning, the idea that uh, it really encourages this kind of um, short term lurching from deadline to deadline, this kind of legislating. And uh, if What's happening is that each side is sort of staking out the position and um, making it difficult to compromise. And recently, we've seen a lot of this again from the uh, from the Republicans, but certainly the Democrats aren't blameless here. It means that uh, we have much less time spent on doing the real work of the Congress and doing real sort of deliberative legislating, um, and that everything is always getting done on a very short timetable. Uh, and we are, you know, getting bills that fund the government for 12 weeks at a time rather than going through the full normal appropriations process. And so I think that uh, what we've been seeing has really made it difficult for uh, Congress to kind of get together and work on uh, the real problems of the country. Um is the press complicit in this? Um, I, I'm, I say that uh, in a, you know, it's so much of the press now, uh, myself included. And we're all I'm a part of it as well. Uh, we we seek to be fair and balanced, um, but are we not guilty, perhaps, of creating a false equivalency? Uh, it sounds like you uh, you've been reading uh, the work of my esteemed Brookings. Brookings colleague uh, Tom Mann and Norm Ornstein. Indeed, um, I have. And, and <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna ha- I'm gonna have him on next week. I'm, 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 having, um, I'm having that'll no- that'll be that'll be great fun for you. Um, uh-huh. They're they're both they're both wonderful uh, wonderful scholars and uh, really astute longtime observers of what's going on in Washington. And uh, what what their work will tell you is that um, we have seen uh, an effort by the media to. Uh, to sort of portray the polarization of 
um, both parties as um, as being a similar phenomenon. Uh, and in reality, we have seen um, uh, Republicans move uh, perhaps farther um, farther to the right than um, Democrats have moved to the left. Um, and one of the things that's been interesting to watch about the current uh, presidential campaign is um, as we've seen um, Republicans and Republican candidates be rewarded um, with the public for sort of being more extreme. We've seen um, uh, presidential candidates on the Democratic side um, do uh, sort of test out some of the same waters. Um, I think that this uh, explains some of the success that we've, uh, in the polls that we've seen of Bernie Sanders, that he's... Um, He's really worked to stake out a strong position uh, position on the left. Um, and so I do think that there is um, – well, I'm sorry. He got Hillary to say that she was progressive. Yes, that's true. <laughs> that, happened, that happened this week um, uh, in, the, in the presidential debate. So, um, so I do think that uh, I think there is um, and has been um, – uh, an interesting, uh, sort of interesting situation that's played out in the media as we've, um, uh, as the parties in Congress have polarized, uh, and I think you're in, you, I think you're in for a real treat um, <laughs> with, uh, with uh, uh, talking to Tom and Norm. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I'm going to, I don't know if I'm going to get uh, Thomas Mann. I know, I know, I'm pretty sure I'm getting Norm Ornstein. I don't know if, right, I'm, I don't right. know if I'm getting a package deal or not. <laughs> Well, uh, either one is delightful. Yeah, no, I, I've, I've seen, I've seen their act together several <laughs> times, and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Do, um, talking here um, with, with Molly Reynolds uh, of the Brookings Institute, um, do you see any glimmer of hope that this phenomenon could somehow alter its current trajectory before to- the 2016 election? Uh, I, I hate to be a pessimist. I like to think that I'm generally a pretty optimistic human being. But However. It's really, it's, uh, it's really difficult right now to see sort of a way out of this in the very short term. Um, part of that uh, is just uh, sort of what we know about the institution generally. Congress um, has a history of being um, – pretty unproductive in election years, um, presidential election years in particular. They want to be off on uh, the campaign trail, attention's de- devoted uh, devoted elsewhere. Um, and in addition, as I, um, I think I mentioned earlier, the other, another thing is that a lot of the uh, historical approaches that um, the majority party in the House has used to kind of manage this diversity within their ranks just don't appear to be working um, at this current point. And so it's hard um, It's hard for me to see uh, any real change in the very near future. Um, and it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the 2016 elections um, and whether we'll get any, uh, any difference after that. Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute, I really want to thank you for being on the public rally today. Uh, It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Molly Reynolds of the Brookings Institute. Coming up, my closing remarks. Next time on The Public Morality, we will discuss President Barack Obama's last State of the Union address. Next time on The Public Morality.
Our political discourse has become dominated by certainty. Certainty can be the most lethal, toxic, and self-fulfilling impulse available in a democratic republic form of government such as ours because it can rob the nation of what it needs most to function, compromise. Not every compromise in American history was a success. I would argue that every compromise on the issue of slavery increased the possibility that the country would eventually settle the matter in civil war. But then again, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton were not exactly political allies in 1790, but they came together. Hamilton got the economic system that he wanted, and Jefferson got the nation's capital located in the South that he wanted. But now the country is governed by an ethos of arrogance that says, my way or nothing. And while many of us are titillated by those who are allegedly sticking to their principles, we the people are the victims of stagnation. We remain hunkered down in our silos of orthodoxy, unable or unwilling to see that our worldview is not the sum total of what the nation can and should be. A nation held together not by orthodoxy, not by ethnicity, but rather an idea. An idea that says we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that we're endowed with certain inalienable rights, and among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness cannot be hamstrung by the arrogance of one faction claiming they are in sole possession of the truth for a nation with over 300 million inhabitants of a variety of stripes. That's certainly not how we get to a more perfect union. The Public Morality welcomes your comments, questions, and suggestions for upcoming shows. To contact us, you can email at Byron, B-Y-R-O-N, Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's Byron at PublicMorality.org. That's our show for today. The Public Morality is produced by WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Mm-hmm.